Welcome to Valley Talk. I'm your host, Heather Stark, and with me today is our frequent and popular guest, Kathy Lambert. Kathy, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be back. Kathy, of course, is our King County Council representative, and new year that we're coming into, and I just read a press release about you, Kathy, that you've been selected to chair the Community Health and Housing Committee for for the county. Um, That is correct. What is that? Yeah, well, what is it is, it is a committee that will be working on making sure that critical service for those people in need, um, such as public health programs, human service programs, and then continuity programs. And that's one of the places I'm going to focus on. We have a lot of things that are happening, like people being released from the jail with nowhere to go. We have people that are mentally ill that during the day have no place to go. And looking at what can we do better for those people so that when they need help, they have what we call the warm handoff. Don't just give them a phone number and a place so you can go here. But this is Mrs. Jones, and she's going to take you there, and she's going to help you with this so that people who are in conflict or in stress will be able to have a human being to help them get from point A to point B. And I'm having problems with trying to get one thing fixed. And it sounds so easy, but it's so funny to me how the bureaucracy gets into a rut. So one of the things I want to do is to say, if you've been arrested twice in one month, that you cannot be released from jail until somebody talks to you about what's going on. Obviously, if you've been arrested twice in the same month, you are in some form of crisis. So let's figure out what that is, get you the services, a warm handoff to get you there, and hopefully you won't be back in jail, which is called recidivism. So I mentioned that to several people, and they're like, oh, council member, you can't do that. That's against the rules. You can't do that. You can't contain a person <laughs> beyond their time. Um, you can't do this. And I'm like... So it's very interesting um, how even the simple answers of saying, we have you here in jail, we need to know what is going on. This is the twice. And for all those taxpayers that are paying for that person to be in jail, and it's not cheap, we need to be able to say, look, I'm paying twice already for you to be here. I need to know that I don't need to do this again. Let's figure out what the problem is and get it solved. So. Well, it sounded like a very simple way of fixing the problem. I found out very quickly that there will be lots of obstacles. So um, I'm well, going okay, to work. Why? why are there obstacles? Why? why? I mean, what, what are these obstacles? Or am I getting well, No, that's fine. Um, some of them have to do with that you can't retain somebody against their will. Um, but mm. I think we could make it part of the booking and unbooking process. Um, to be able to say, okay, you're you're leaving, and so what are we going to do to make sure that you don't come back again? And I have to assume that people that are in crisis need help um, because otherwise they wouldn't be there. I don't think anybody loves being in the King County Jail. Um, It's not bad for a jail, but it's a jail. So, um, and it's expensive for the rest of us to be continually paying for people that are arrested 5, 10, 20, 30 times in a month. So I feel that that's unacceptable. And so that's where I need the citizens to help me. Um, if they think that that's a reasonable solution, then help me be able to get the system who doesn't want that solution to be able to say, no, we should know why these people are being arrested multiple times. 
So that is one of the things that I would like to get solved because I, I think it's not kind to let somebody remain in crisis to the point where then they are acting out and hurting other people. So I'm all for it. It makes sense to me. Um, and I think, you know, in my personal history, you know, this notion that you can't hold someone against their will is not one that I, I, I believe in because my mother was mentally ill and it was almost, it was impossible for my sister and I to get her help because she didn't want it. And we couldn't get her help. And we went for years watching her deteriorate, watching the entire family be in, uh, you know, uh, a, a crisis. And finally, she called the police to have them help get the people out of her house who had come to visit and had, hadn't left. They didn't leave. They went upstairs instead after she served them coffee. So the police came. And, of course, there were no people. They were imaginary people. And then the police officer, who had never met my mother before in his life, he could get her to the hospital. He could get her help. But her loving daughters who, you know, no, we couldn't. As you can tell, it's an emotional issue for me. And the idea that family members, I think we have the assumption now that family members don't have your best interests at heart. And I'm sure there are some who don't. But the vast majority of family members want their family member to be okay. They want to get that person help. They want good for that person and to completely shut the family out of that system and not require them, you know, not allow them um, to get that. I mean, it, it just, it's a hot button for me, Kathy. So what you're saying, uh, you know, I, I, so many things about that system need, need to change. And it sounds like you have an idea for at least changing a little piece of it. So I'm all for it. So well, thank you. And the, what you're saying is so true. And last legislative session, they passed a law that said that family members will be taken more seriously and can go before the court. But it's new. Most people don't know it. Uh, we don't have a lot of beds yet. Um, we're hoping to open 60 beds um, in the this year. Later in the year, we have to do some modifications to the building for ADA compliance. But once the structural things are done to the building, there are 60 beds where we will be able to take some of these people who family members know just what you said. They're emotional. They're caring. They want to do the best thing for their family, but nobody has believed them. And again, saying, well, what do you know? You're only family. You're not a trained psychologist or whatever. But the family does know when things aren't right and getting help as soon as possible is really important. And I think, you know, the analogy I give is if you see somebody on the street that is having an appendicitis attack or they've got a bone sticking out of their body, you don't walk up to them and say, when you feel like going to the hospital, please let me know. You just assume that this person's in crisis and then you take over. You call the ambulance. You do all these things. You can even start to give some medical assistance because under the Good Samaritan Act, you are protected to do what a normal person would do in good faith to take care of the situation. But when it comes to mental health, we unfortunately have been saying, oh, that's not my situation. I can't deal with that. And we just let these people be on the streets in the cold and you know many of them have medical issues that they need bandages changed they need to be taking certain drugs and that is not easy when you're living on the streets so we have com- we have confused compassion 
for complacency. And I think we need to undo that. But there are a lot of people who like the system the way it is, and the fruits of the system are clearly not good. No, no. Um, You had said when you started telling us about this idea that you need citizen help. What, What do you want? Because I'm a citizen. Well, I, I, you know. <laughs> yeah. No, when I bring forth whatever I finally figure out we can bring forth without a lot of pushback, that people need to write letters, um, either to the Supreme Court saying, why don't you allow this? Or to the legislature, you know, what can you do to help? That there should be a process after people have been arrested multiple times in the same month. Um, and I believe that I will be able to figure out a way Um, using the discharge process at the jail to be able to do that um, and just say it's part of discharge. So, But there'll probably be people saying, oh, even if it takes two minutes, it's it's wrong, it's bad. And I think people stepping up to the plate and saying, no, it's not wrong or bad. This is in the person's best interest, just as it is giving them back their belongings. This is just part of giving them back their chance to having a good life again. Yeah, and they may choose not to uh, avail themselves of that, but at least that we have tried. At least we've tried to yes. get that person help so that we stop that cycle. Um, it sounds good to me. It sounds good, oh, good. to me. And, I, and the idea <laughs> that, you know, let, let's, let's make 2020, let's make this next decade the one where we bring back some common sense. Um, I it, think it that just, is a very good idea. Okay. Oh, you know, boy. we're rolling today. <laughs> some things, you know, people have gotten so used to, oh, that's the new rule, as opposed to, is that what's really best for our society? And, you know, yeah. things are taking care of one another and having a community norm. I mean, in Seattle, they are not arresting on basic laws that are community norms, like you don't spit on the street, you don't urinate on the street, you don't throw things at people. And, you know, in the old days, if you were smoking marijuana on the street, you'd be arrested. But now you can have a certain amount of drugs on you and that's fine. Do whatever you want. And I think at some point the scale gets tipped where people finally say, this violence, my clothes smelling bad every time I walk down Pike and Pine, you know, whatever it is that people are tired of, we need to just say, no, that this is not okay and it needs to be fixed because... I will tell you that there are a lot of people that think the way things are is just fine. And in my opinion, it is not. Well, one of the, you know, I mean, you know, I rant and and one of my rants (laughs) about uh, the homelessness issue is that we have kind of built an industry around it. And I worry whenever we build industries that, you know, I mean, I remember, you know, decades ago when I first started working on an MBA and, one of my professors said, the purpose of a bureaucracy is to perpetuate the bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. So it starts for a good reason, to save babies or to help, you know, whatever. But the fact is that just because of the nature of a bureaucracy, once that bureaucracy is formed, that purpose becomes secondary to perpetuating and staying in business. And I look at all of these services, all of the stuff that's been created and all of the money um, that goes into the homelessness stuff. And I just, you know, I mean, uh, Governor Inslee is now proposing another huge chunk of money to go in. And I think, but is that actually going to help anything? Is that really going to help or is that just perpetuating the bureaucracy? 
And so I have concerns about that. And I think that this whole idea of common sense, you know, are we just perpetuating a bureaucracy here with all of these rules and all of these, uh, you know, procedures and uh, departments and, you know, or are we actually trying to solve the problem? Because if we're trying to solve the problem, we should, by logic then, be actually putting the industry of whatever it is out of business. That should be the goal of social service organizations, in my view, is to put themselves out of business. Well, one of the things is that we have abdicated family, church, community to government. And I was just in Nuremberg recently and asking people, how did things go so badly? And one of the things that they told me is because we started giving everything over to the government. And I was like, oh, my gosh. So um, I had some frightening experiences as I was listening to people talking about, you know, things that had gone wrong in their culture. And I think that we definitely need to be looking at, you know, what you were saying about, you know, the governor putting more money into this request. Um, I have people telling me, look, if I have to pay a tax for homeless prevention, I may be the next homeless person because I can't afford that. And I think we need to be looking at what is the role of government, what's the role of church, what's the role of family, what's the role of community. And if people were each doing their lane of the work, then it wouldn't be on all the taxpayers to be paying for some of the things. And we have a particular senator who comes up with great ideas, but they're very expensive and they are not the priorities in some cases of the court or whatever the other department is. Um, but it's very difficult to stand up and say, well, yes, you know, I don't support this, even though it's a good thing, because it shouldn't be being done by government. It should be done by the churches or by the family. And nobody wants to to be the one that says that. And so a lot of people go along with, oh, yes, let's take this on and take that on. And many, many things, you've heard the term unfunded mandates. The legislature is thinking up a new idea every night, at least. 10 or 11 of them, and, but they don't send money for them. So, right. you know, then the, the cities and the counties who have to do these things are saying, okay, now we have to get an attorney here, and we have to do this for that, and 10 processes over here, and we have to do that. Um, you know, even the Public Records Act, um, that was intended to be a very good thing. But now we get these requests that literally cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And there will be people who will say, well, you can get it all online and you can do it in sections and you can do this. But I will tell you, every department in King County now has a public records expert. And I don't think that that was the intent of the law. The intent was be transparent, don't hide things. But I got a request one year for a fellow council member who was running for a major political office, and they wanted every email that I had written him in the last four years. Um, That is a ridiculous request. Um, But legally, I had to do it. And I would guess that probably cost a couple thousand dollars. That's not fair to all the taxpayers in this this county, and actually in the state, um, that... Mr. Jones or McGillicuddy or whomever can make that kind of a request that is, in my mind, frivolous, and yet all of us have to pay for it. I believe there should be a board that has Republicans, Democrats, independents, minorities, labor, um, citizens, and media, by the way, and media, 
And then mm-hmm. those people would be the experts, and you'd come in and say, you know, Mrs. Such-and-Such or Mr. Such-and-Such has requested this information, and we believe it will cost X to produce. Do you think that that is a viable request? And if the people, three-quarters of them say yes, no, I mean, if they say no, then we don't do it. Um, because I believe that some of the requests are so bizarre that we would probably get a cross-section of the citizens paying for it going, no way. So, you know, I think that's a bureaucracy that um, has gotten out of control. We do put, you know, we know that there will be certain things that will be controversial. And so we put those up on the web right from the very beginning. Um, you know, all the bills, all the minutes are already on the web. So those kinds of things are already out there, and we know we retain all the records of any financial transaction. So the process of what people intended is already there. But these, well, we even had to go to court because we had inmates who were requiring, I mean, they didn't have anything to do all day. So they came up with all these requests, and we eventually went to the court and got that fixed. But Prior to that, we were paying lots of money. So I think having citizens stand up and say, yeah, no, this isn't okay. You fix this. You get a commission together that you know can start monitoring this. This is out of control. And that's where I think the citizens need to be listening to whomever they know and like. They've got to have one elected official they trust and like. It doesn't matter what party. If this person's got integrity and they've got an idea, you can like their idea, you can not like their idea. But most of the time, when it comes to local government, there's really no party affiliation. There's a pothole. It doesn't care what party you are or how tall or how short you are. There's a pothole there. Um, and so in local government, we get along very well all across the state because we're dealing with fixing problems. And I think that if the citizens would help by saying, what do you mean it's costing that kind of money? We had no idea that there is a person that's an expert and in every single department because that's what it's turned into so that we can protect from being sued. Um, I think we could be cutting a lot of money and it saddens me when I look in the budget of things like that that are there because of the system's gotten out of control. But um, trying to break it unless we have citizen support is very difficult. Well, and as you pointed out, the more we turn over to government, whether it's local or state or federal, the less we participate because we assume, okay, they're taking care of it. And the larger the entity, sometimes the less efficient it is. I know that's a shock. Um, And and it doesn't necessarily mean that it really is being taken care of. Um, I see a lot of lip service um, to a lot of problems that we have as as a culture. And I think, wow, you know, here we have these enormous bureaucracies, these, you know, uh, legions of employees, legions of departments, separate buildings to take care of this particular problem, and yet we still have the problem. Um, So maybe that's not the most efficient way to do it. One of the things that I was absolutely surprised by when I was taking my first economics class is that statistically, I mean, you can look this up, the more government does for social service problems, the less the individual citizen does. Yes. The less the government does, the more the individual does. And a great example of that is, remember when our President Trump was first elected, um, there was a huge hue and cry from um, Planned Parenthood. 
because they feared that he was going to withdraw funding from Planned Parenthood. What happened that year? Planned Parenthood got a record amount of individual contributions from individuals who wanted to support Planned Parenthood. If the government wasn't supporting them, guess who was going to? Perfect example of that. And so your call for citizen involvement, I think, is huge. I mean, we need to take back some of these problems because we can probably do it in our own local communities more efficiently, cheaper, and probably more effectively because I'm convinced that we are more effective on solving a problem if we're one-on-one, if we're person-to-person, human-to-human in doing that. So, you know, I'm on board with everything you're saying, Kinsey. Well, thank you. (laughs) One of the things I would also like to see is for us to bring the churches in. I've talked to a number of churches all across the county, and they're saying, council member, yes, we would love to help. But once we say we'll help, then the government comes with all these regulations. And I was at a speech the other day, and a woman was speaking, and she was talking about how they have been able to get people self-sufficient and done a very a very good job and they have over an 80% I can't remember the number I think it was 93 but um percent chance of getting these people you know success rate of getting them self sufficient and I about fell out of my chair and I'm like who is this lady so I went up to her afterwards and I said no is that one year data or two years data and she goes no that's the rolling average of 30 years I said you've been doing this for 30 years and she said yes and I'm like, how come I haven't heard of you? And she said, because we get no government money, and we don't, we don't have any interface with the government. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So, you know, here we have known places where they're getting very high success rates, and yet they don't want to be involved because the government will give them so many rules and regulations that they can't get their work done. So one of the things I would like to do, and and when this comes out. Um, I would like to have a faith-based model where a person in crisis can choose to go to that faith-based community and say, I would like to take my drug counseling at this church. And I know several churches. I was at a church one night for a meeting, and I walked into this room, and everybody shut up quickly and looked at me, and I could see this look on their face like she doesn't belong here. And I backed out and went down the hall and said, I think I'm lost. And they go, oh, you're supposed to be at that meeting over there. And I said, what's that meeting over there? And they said, that's Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm like, no wonder they were quiet when I walked in. So I was shocked with how many people are in that room and um, doing great. Um, So the the idea that good things are happening in all kinds of places and churches that we don't even know about, that we could expand because they're willing to expand if government would stay out of it. So I think the people should be able to say, no, I want to go to church X or synagogue X, whatever, and get my drug and alcohol counseling there. And if that's what they want to do, I would love to give them the opportunity because I believe if that organization has had an 80 or 90% success rate, government doesn't have anywhere near that success rate. If you really want to get your life back, you're going to need to pick someplace that has a better success rate. So um, that will be very controversial because people will say you can't mix um, um, state and religion and and such, but that is not the intent of the original founding fathers. Founding fathers was government was not supposed to intervene in religion, not that religion couldn't help the state. But again, we don't know our history very well, so we have interpreted it a little bit backwards. So 
Anyway, those are the kinds of things of trying to bring some common sense, looking at ways of doing things more efficiently, more effectively, cheaper. Um, we did do something a little innovative um, over the last couple of months that's to do with homelessness. Um, we decided to partner with the city of Seattle um, and take all the agencies and wrap them kind of into one so that people were, were not saying, okay, I have to keep this data for Seattle and this data for this group and then this data for the county because all that keeps money and record keeping that we would decide what is the most important data that we need to keep to get people on the road to self-sufficiency. And I don't think it's a bad thing to say my expectation is for every human being to be self-sufficient to the manner they are able. So if you have a person with an IQ of 30, you're not going to expect them to get a job at, you know, some rocket science group. Um, but you do have to have expectations for how are they going to live in a way that is respectful for them. And mm-hmm. being able to make sure that we get that for each person and that they know they have to do something to become self-sufficient to the manner in which they can they can be. So I think that's going to be a really big push because people will say, well, you're interfering in people's lives. And my answer to that is, The minute that I have to pay for them, they've interrupted my life, and I am now paying for them when my preference would be paying for college tuition for my grandchildren. Um, But I'm willing to be generous if I feel like it's being done in a way that is, um, is being used properly. And I say that as a church tithe payer, so I live when I believe. Um, so I think that there are things that we can do, but we're going to hit the brick wall of people saying, oh, no, you can't mix those two. So we put this group together. Seattle's going to put in $75 million. King County's going to put in $55 million for the next two years, and we will then have this overseer group who is going to be more hands-on. Why is this person homeless? What can we do? What services should they be? Hold them accountable. If at the end of two years, the county or the city decides that this is not working, we can then pull out. But that will be very difficult. And I think citizens need to know the city had one council member that voted no on this because she wanted this group to have its own taxing authority and said that if the council members, both city and county, had any jurisdiction over this, that it would become political. And I'm like, when you take other people's money, you need to make sure that that person is accountable to the people, not some bureaucrat that's going to say, oh, I need taxing authority. No. So I thought that vote was very interesting and very telling from the Seattle council person. But we did not allow that. And we do have a way that if this doesn't work, we can back out. But the citizens need to be you know, putting on their calendar for 2023 find out how that's working and if it's not working that they need to be saying okay we gave you two years and what is the requirements now obviously it's not going to be solved in two years but there needs to be good progress and people need to know that Seattle King County is not the place to come to be homeless because we're so generous because when you get here you're going to have to do some things too and as I think I told you before I spent three days in the Oklahoma um, homeless shelter, and they have their system down to the T. Nobody in Oklahoma City is homeless. 
if you look like you're homeless, you'll be picked up by the police. You'll be brought to the mission. The mission counselors will go over with you what's going on, what are your needs, here are the places you can go, here are the requirements, and they have a series of options. And you will take one of those options because there is not an option to sleep on the streets. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's amazing. So I was so impressed with what I saw. And they have an 80% success rate. So once we can get to 80, then we can figure it out. But I think we should be borrowing. And the director, Tom, is very generous. He said he would give us whatever we need to get started um, to replicate his program. And I think we should stop reinventing the wheel, find the best. And Tom would be fine. Scott at the Seattle um, Union Gospel Mission has very similar getting these people who are actually doing it, have done it, got a plan, and replicating that. Once we get to 80% success, then we can start saying, okay, now what do we need to do next to get to the next 20? But we're a long way from 80. Well, and I think for most of us, I mean, I talk to a lot of people of all sorts of different political persuasions, and I have not, I cannot remember a time when people felt that the way things are going and building more bureaucracy is going to take care of that particular problem. I mean, it, it, that's not the general perception unless you happen to be a bureaucrat who wants to, I, I call it the industry. I call it the homelessness industry because mm-hmm. I don't see that. I, and I'm, I'm searching here because I just read yesterday um, in the conversation uh, in Olympia uh, about uh, budgeting, there was um, a, a congressman who, or a, a, a senator who said uh, exactly how much we're spending per homeless person in King County. And it was staggering. It was uh, uh, like, he said, depending on what numbers you use, it's anywhere from twenty to uh, $60,000 per person that yes. we have budgeted for homelessness. Well, yes. good heavens. You could mm-hmm. you could build a couple of houses and give people a, an annual stipend, you know, <laughs> for those yes. prices. And yet well, we're when building we, more. And we're... When we opened um, a house in Seattle that was um, the turned out to be the hundred and eight most expensive people in King County, we went to the courts, the jails, the hospital, and we said, "Who are your frequent flyers?" and figure out approximately how much you think you spent on them during the last 12 months. So we made a list of who were the most expensive. We went to them and said, would you like to be part of living in this house? And here are the rules. And it was very, very controversial. And it was run by the now deceased but amazing man, Bill Hobson. And Bill and I talked about this, and we talked about different parts of the program and um we moved in these people, and the next year, those same people um, cost $4.3 million less than they had the year before. And that was amazing. And a lot of the expenses were because they had pending issues with the court that they still had to clean up the next year. But one of the people cost $500,000 the year before in community services. And that is not okay. When we are spending that kind of money on anybody, we need to be looking at what are the wraparound services and can this be done in a way where it does not get to that situation. And we have seen in the house in Seattle that that actually does work. 
So there's a lot of things we can do, but then you get the group that comes and says that's not kind. Um, you know, there's always naysayers for anything that puts any responsibility. That it's always should be government, and government should always be doing more. Um, so talking about doing more, can I switch topics on you for a second? Sure, but let me clarify what I just said. Uh, it would okay. be um, uh, Republican leader Mark Schlesler. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly. Mark Schlesler. He's Schessler. the one who said. Jessler, okay. He's the one who said that current uh, estimates show public spending twenty to $80,000 per homeless individual. And his question before that body was, with all that government spending, are we spending it well? And I think that that's a really important question to talk about. And that's what, you know, you're, you're addressing. So, yay. So far, you're just Thank on you. my all-star list, Kathy. So well, what are, good. What are I we like moving that. to? What, are, what well, topic are we moving to? We're going to talk about a very controversial topic, and that is guns. And today at uh, 1 o'clock, the Board of Health will be hearing a bill, which is Bill 20-01. And um, as we know that we recently, as a state, um, passed the ordinance, I'm sorry, the initiative 1639, which changed a lot of the gun regulations in the state. They've barely taken effect. And so we don't know yet. Was that helpful? Did it make a difference? You know, what are the outcomes of that? And anybody that's done any kind of research knows you need to have a control group. You need to know the data. You need to compare the two. But now, as of today, there's a new ordinance saying that it's not new, it's retreaded, but it's up again, that they want the state to take away state preemption which means that every city and county can decide what their gun rules are in their municipality. So driving from my house in Redmond um, through, you know, Bellevue and down, you know, past all the different cities to getting into work in Seattle, every single one of those may have a different rule. And if I'm stopped and I haven't kept up to date on, oh, this is the rule from Mercer Island, or this is the rule from Beaux-Arts, or this is Bellevue, or this is Kirkland, or this is whomever, I could be in trouble. And that is the reason we have state preemption, that there's one rule for the entire state, no matter where you go in the state, that's a rule, so you can know. So they want that change, which is not feasible, as far as I'm concerned. And for the people who are lawful, gun-owning people, that will make life miserable. And in addition, the ordinance says that you need to be getting training. It doesn't say who's training, what training, where, how long, how frequent. So they've opened this huge door of manipulating what it will be for gun owners. And they just assume that every gun owner is a bad gun owner. So, um, you know, we have had situations recently where, you know, gun owners being in situations have been very helpful to um, keeping other bad things from happening. So we obviously passed the initiative that said we want these safety protections, and we are implementing that. So I think that we definitely need to follow along with the, the new law and get whatever needs to happen there taken care of, monitor it. But to start adding more onto that, um, especially trying to change state preemption, is in my mind dangerous. And I know there will be people, be people that you know believe there should never be a gun. Um, I don't 
believe that, but there are people who do. And I think that um, this this ordinance that is before the public health is not necessary. And they're talking about doing a task force to, for the whole year, be looking at what new gun laws can we do. And while we have an increase in various diseases um, in the county and homelessness and all kinds of things coming up in the news about a new disease in China, all kinds of things that we should be focusing on the Board of Health, we are spending time on an issue that the citizens just voted on in 1639. So I am very concerned uh, about the way this bill is written, being so open and not clear, and then secondly, that they're requesting state preemption. So I think the citizens should know that that is coming before the board today. It could be voted on today. I will ask that it not be because citizens haven't had an opportunity to read it and see it um, and comment, but um, they could jam it through today, and I I have no idea what will happen this afternoon. Okay. Well, you know we're recording this uh, a couple days before, so uh, we'll try and get an update from you um, after, um, you know, after after whatever happens today so that we're current when we go on the air, and and I think it's going to be four days, three or four days. Um, So, you know, let me know, and we'll tag that information on. Um, But, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I don't I don't own a gun. Um, I don't belong to any gun or uh, rifle associations or anything like that. However, I grew up in the country. We always had a rifle, and we had a, a, a 22 rifle and a shotgun, and we would stack bales of hay, and we would put targets on them, and we would do target practice. And every now and then, not frequently because it's expensive, but every now and then, I go down to one of the gun shops and do some target practice. Um, and I, I don't have a problem with guns. Um, I think that we are kind of encouraging and living in a state of panic over guns. Um, And my favorite mantra is, you know, if you have children, and and the studies show, Pew Research shows, that one of the biggest fears for young people today is that somebody will come to their school and shoot them. But Mm -hmm. their likelihood, (laughs) the, the likelihood of that happening is really quite remote despite the publicity. And in fact, if parents and students are worried that their life is going to be ended, they should pay more attention to their driving because statistically they're more likely to die in their cars than they are by a school shooter. And yet we've created this this panic over guns. And I think that what we're seeing with all of this random legislation and all these, you know, it, it's a result of this panic over guns. And in fact, most people own guns. I mean, there's a huge number. There are millions of gun owners that never have problems, never have accidental shootings, never have anything like that. Um, but because the aberration, you know, we, we've created a whole culture of guns are evil. Um, and I'm not sure I buy into that. So uh, this 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 law concerns me. Um, I think, as you said, and and rightly so. Let's let's wait and see what happens with this last one that we passed before we rush to do another one. Absolutely, and I think, you know, in days gone by, all children were taught—not all children, but many children—were taught how to use a gun very safely at an early age, and they learned respect. They learned that this is something that you don't use for, you know, things that aren't safe. And I think mm-hmm. that it's 
important. It sort of like reminds me of the the fairy tale where they hid all the spinning wheels because they didn't want her to prick her finger. And had she not thought it was a novel thing, she might have been, um, she probably would have been pricked anyway, just learning how to use the spinning wheel. But she, (laughs) yes, but she would have had respect and, and, um, you know, known some skills and, I think it's really important, and I know my children were taught at a young age and love target practicing, and, um, you know, it's it's something that, you know, it's part of our family, and we have great respect, and my dad being a, a policeman, we always had a gun in the house, and we knew that where the gun was, and that it was there for a particular reason, and we knew that if dad needed it, that it was going to be a situation where it was serious and we were not to touch that gun. So Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, again, all this stuff gets back to common sense. And what Mm -hmm. you said is so powerful that we've made demons of all kinds of things, demons of don't talk about religion and, oh, they can't help us. And this is dangerous in all counts and, and let the government do all this. And then we can criticize them. We don't have to, to stand up and say, oh, yeah, my part to take care of my neighbor was this or that. Why wasn't government here 10 minutes ago? I needed help 10 minutes ago. Um, you know, one of the things that's that's always evident during a snowstorm is, you know, people calling at, you know, 10 minutes after the snow has started, when is my street going to be plowed? And <laughs> I, I get it. I don't like driving in the snow either. But there's a huge list. We have 1,500 miles of roads in the in the city in the county, and the cities have more, not more individually, but they have more in addition to our 1,500. And we have a whole list of when when the roads will be plowed, in what order, and sometimes things happen. You know that last year the plow, the plows all broke down because of the density of the snow. We had to bring in graders. So, you know, people don't ask, gee, what's happening? Um, or is my street on the list? Or how many days until I do get a snowplow? Because you can't, you can't have 500 snowplows. Um, and so it's just interesting to watch how, you know, people think that their house should be, you know, within 10 minutes and not understand mm-hmm. the entire picture. And so sometimes I just... yeah. Look at Facebook and say, "Okay, let's let's go back to kindness and um, <laughs> well, realize we do it. Live in, yeah, we we do live in a very self-centered. I mean, it's funny to me because at the same time that I see our culture becoming very much more self-centered. What about me? What about my road? What about me? 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 We are also making a bigger show, and I emphasize the word show of what we do for others." If mm-hmm. I see one more YouTube video of the high school jock, you know, passing his trophy on to the disabled water boy, you know that that was planned and you know that showed up on his college application, you know, <laughs> about mm-hmm. what a great person he is. It seems to me we're, it's all smoke and mirrors. We, we seem to be segueing in, well, we seem to be there, where it's all about show. I love that term virtue signaling. It's all about mm-hmm. the virtue signaling not about the virtue. And that seems to be occurring at the same time that we seem to be becoming more and more self-centered about our particular needs and what everybody else needs to do for us. That's my jaded old lady view. <laughs> but that's well, your I'm old saying. lady view is consistent with the scriptures where it talks about that 
when you get praise in public, you've gotten your praise. When you do it in private, your Heavenly Father will honor you. So it depends on why you want your your praise. Do you want it right now, or do you want it and building your character for eternity? So um, I think you're in good stead. <laughs> I don't know. I know that there have been times in my life where I've uh, I've thought this is why I would like to be rich. You know, where you hear there are so many individual stories of people that need help and that they just need a little. They just need a, a little. I'm thinking of a of a story of a young woman with a baby whose husband beat her terribly. He was wanted by the police. He went into hiding, and she and her daughter were in their apartment, and she felt that he would come. She would see feet, you know, under the door jam in the middle of the night, and she was terrified that it was going to be him. And somebody in our group said, well, move. And she looked at them, and she said, this was when you still had – uh, first and last month rent required in order to rent. And she looked at that person and said, I don't have the thousands of dollars it takes to move. Mm-hmm. And right then I thought, that's why I would like to be rich. Wouldn't it be wonderful to just reach in your pocket, pull out four or $5,000, give it to this woman and her child so she can move and feel safe and sleep through the night. That's why I would like to be rich. Not so that I could make some big, huge grant and get a bunch of publicity, but so that you could just reach in your pocket and quietly hand that money to the woman and walk away. I, I, that's what I would like. So that's I don't know. That, that's, that's, that's my wish list. Okay. <laughs> so if you can raise so, something at the county, that would be good. Um. Yes. Well, actually, we do kind of have a program like that through our DV if we have – a situation where we can help put somebody where they're safer. There are there are ways that we can make things like that happen. Um, yeah. I also have some good news for you. We have a good new chair. The, we have a new chair of the King County Council, and she's a woman. And we haven't had a woman since 2008 um, taking that chair, so that's exciting. And we have been looking to see how long ago it has been since we had a person who was chair who did not live in the Seattle area or represent part of Seattle. So um, she lives in Bellevue. So having an East Sider um, as the chair of the council, I think is going to be very refreshing because she too sees um, things on this side and knows that this side exists. So I think that that will bring a good balance. And the other good news is the Department of Local Services, which we started a year ago this month, um, has been doing amazing things. Um, I am so proud of what they've accomplished already. And um, somebody said to me the other day, they're not perfect. And I'm like, are you? Um, But um, (laughs) they are really making huge, huge changes in how the county represents the unincorporated areas. They've had over 500 meetings with different constituents. They're at several libraries every week for people to make appointments and come in and visit with them. Um, They have a new person, they have two new people that are working on efficiencies at the permitting office. Um, They have another person that's working on a new computer system to streamline things so people won't even have to go into the office. They can do it online. They are making so much progress that in my mind when we set this up after years of trying to get it organized, um, I thought 
they would be at this point in five years. And the idea that they have done so much work so quickly is just amazing. And they are really working hard on customer service and the people who are working there uh, really are top-notch people. So I'm very excited that we have the Department of Local Services and the good work that they're doing in being transparent and open and helpful. So it's wonderful to have a counterpart on the executive side that is in Dow's cabinet, has his ear on a daily basis as part of the executive branch. And he and I work together very well. And I'm I'm very pleased with what's happened so far and what I believe is ahead. So very exciting things there, even after one year. Great. Great. I have a couple of quick questions for you. We've only got about sure. 10 minutes left, so you okay. don't need to go into big, long things, but I know people are okay. talking about the winery thing. What about the winery code <laughs> update? Can you give us a a, a three-minute version of what, what's happened with that? It has now passed the legislature um, because one of the members um, came into my office the very first day. I had no idea who Karen was. Um, and told me straight out, I'm going to sue you. And I'm like, okay, who are you? (laughs) And what are you going to sue me for? Um, So um, right from the beginning, we were very clear that nobody was going to be happy. And um, But yet there are thousands of people that come to the wineries, enjoy the wineries, and want them to be there. And basically there are some people who don't want any winery tasting rooms in the valley. They want them all inside the city limits um, in the industrial area of Woodenville. And there are people who say, you know, while those industrial winery tasting rooms are very nice, um, when they open the door, you're in a parking lot. And some people like when the door is open to look out at the fields. So there was a lot of misinformation that went around, um, including the fact that I was told I don't I don't like farmers, um, for which my <laughs> farmer friends in the valley are like, they said what? So lots of misinformation that it got to the point where um, one of the pieces of information was that they said we had not um, we had not given it enough time, and I pulled out a newspaper article that was four years old to say this is when it started. It's got a four-year date. So yes, we've given it enough time. And that we didn't have enough meetings. And we had many, many meetings. And you can talk about something so many times that there's nothing new coming out. You've already heard it 500 times. And we had way Mm -hmm. past gotten that. Um, It was controversial, difficult, and we tried to get a balance. Um, Is it everything I wanted in my original bill? No. Um, Dow sent over a bill. and it was going to close the tasting rooms at 7 p.m. So I knew that that would not be the best way. So we negotiated with Dow that we can keep them open until 9 p.m. Um, and so, you know, we did a lot of negotiating. And the executive branch, their people were fabulous in the negotiating. They truly negotiated like negotiators should, where you compromise and you work it out, you give and you take. And they did a great job. And the legislative branch, and then we had people in the legislative branch that don't represent that area who had some of their own concerns, and the environmentalists got into it, the Hollywood Hill people got into it. So um, there were many, many cooks in the soup. And um, one of the people afterwards said, nobody likes it, so he must have done a wonderful job. 
um, we tried to make the best reasonable compromise we possibly could. But in the end, it came down that there was a particular group that if I don't get it my way, then nothing's okay. And they even brought me in a compromise bill that they had written for me. They have several attorneys in their group. And I was very pleased. They brought in a compromise bill. I brought it home. And that night I started reading it. And it was a compromise that wasn't 50-50, which is what my definition of a compromise is. It was, I get everything, you get nothing. And um, I had to tell them, this is not my idea of compromise. If you want to take it, make it 50-50, 60-40. No, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's a so, no, no. <laughs> Yeah, so all through the entire process, they said, we wrote you a compromise bill. And um, so that kind of misinformation um, they called schools in the area and scared them. It was it was a very painful part of legislating. I've written lots of legislation in my years that were much more far-reaching, much more complicated, much more serious, but this was the ugliest one I've ever worked on. Mm. So it's mm. done. <laughs> it is done. Um, okay. But I do believe that we will be sued. Um, they... We had a team, and I do mean a team, of attorneys who worked on this bill um, for months and months and months, maybe even a year. Um, And one of our main things from the very beginning, since that lady walked into my office telling me the very first day she was going to sue me. um, And in addition, you know, we don't like to pass things that are illegal or, you know, not not correctly written. So, um, you know, our attorney staff was with us constantly saying this complies. If you write it this way, then this is better here, that's better there, this needs to be here. So we had lots and lots of legal advice. And so if they sue us, we are prepared to defend ourselves in court. And I will tell you that we have a delightfully um, skilled um, civil department at the county. And I think that if they choose to sue us, we are ready. Okay. All right, and we're going to see how that – well, you know, I'm sure that you didn't include my idea in there. I think that with our roads issue, with our roads problems and, and road repair budgets and all that that we're, that we're facing, I think, especially if they, they get – Seattle gets that um, uh, system where they are going to charge people just for use of the roads, I think we should start charging all those folks that come out to the wineries on the weekends and to the mountains and everything. We should charge them for using our roads. And then that way we could pay to have our roads repaired. Now, see, that's a really great idea, Kathy. I don't know why you didn't jump on it. (laughs) Well, actually, it kind of did, but a little different way. When the people come out there, that's unincorporated King County. And out of the 1% sales tax, that we are able to collect um, for the county. If they buy in the unincorporated area, we get the full 1%. If they buy it in Woodenville, Woodenville gets 0.85% and we get 15%. So by moving them down a block, um, we get more tax dollars. So that's your idea. However, one of the other pieces of misinformation that I thought was quite hysterical um, every once in a while you have to laugh at craziness, um, was that that was why we allowed this to happen, so we could get all these extra tax dollars. Mm-hmm. And I I had to laugh because we need 
hundreds of millions of dollars. And I'm not assuming and I'm hoping that people in King County aren't drinking hundreds of millions of dollars of money that uh, we would need because if we're getting 1%, um, that's a lot of, of alcohol um, to get a 1% that would be hundreds of millions of dollars. So, um, again, another one of those things that people say that you kind of look at and go, really? You didn't really say that. Yeah. Well, you know, it's hard. It, it is hard, in all fairness, for us lay people who are out here. I mean, we don't see 180 degrees. We don't see 360 degrees. Yes. We see what we see in front of us. Um, and I always try to be aware of that. However, that being said, doesn't mean that what we see in front of us is an accurate, good, and wonderful, and you guys, you politicians should all listen to it, okay? <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's why it's important for you to have an elected official, whoever it is, that you trust, that you can call and say, hey, tell me the background on this. And, you know, why didn't this get done? Well, because the helicopter was over here rescuing somebody, blah, 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 blah. Oh, I had no idea that happened. Of course you didn't know that yeah. that was happening. So knowing the rest of the story, you know, Paul Harvey used to say it was important to know the rest of the story. And I think people <laughs> jump to conclusions by what their their eyes see and not always processing like, hmm, how is this connected to that? So I always appreciate when people call and say, could you tell me the rest of the story on this? And, um, you know, I'm happy that people care enough to ask. And so I will tell them. Mm-hmm. Well, Kathy, we've almost wrapped up this hour, and I must say, I haven't taken you to task for anything. I don't know if whether I'm holding up oh, my end of the dear. conversation, because normally, <laughs> normally I take you to task pretty well, you know, but I didn't find anything to jump on this time, so next time, next time I'll well, start saving up my I energy. will look forward to the challenge. So thank you, and thank you for helping make sure that people are informed um, on so many different topics. The exciting well, thing about being an elected official is there's tons of them. Yep. Well, and thank you for being so open with us and talking to us because we really, I mean, I don't know how many people are like me, but I mean, I, I will, the earth has to move and then change its axis or something before I want to drive into Seattle. And um, I don't, you know, I, I, so much of what they do affects our lives out here. um, Mm -hmm. And yet here we are. So you're kind of our our uh, tie-in to all of those folks out there, and you're our tie-in, obviously, to the council, which is doing all sorts of stuff. So I appreciate your coming out here and doing these interviews with us, and uh, we'll look forward to the next one. We're going to try doing these about every five or six weeks, aren't we? I think so, whenever you call me. Okay. All right. We'll Sounds jump on good. that. Meanwhile... Uh, this show will run on Sunday evenings, and it will run on Tuesday evenings. And uh, the shows are also up on our website. You can listen to them as a podcast. So uh, we've got the information out there, and we appreciate your coming out here and uh, talking about the work that you're doing and what we can all look forward to in 2020. Thank you for listening to Valley Talk. I'm Heather Stark. Join us again next week. 